All right, let's turn to John, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, 4 through 9, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Boy, John's really trying to drive that point home, isn't he? For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word. We pray that you'd help us to cover as much ground as possible. But we know that uh, your spirit will do his work here today. And we ask you just to touch our hearts and minds, open up the truth of your word to us today. And we pray that it would have a transforming effect upon us, a renewing effect upon us. That we would take these things to heart and apply them to our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And by the way, one of the main purposes in John's writing of this letter, we're told in 1 John 2, 1, John says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Because that is the goal for every believer. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. John says, I don't want you to sin, and so I'm writing you this letter to help you. 1 John 2, 1. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, and that's a legal term, like a defense attorney. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So John is acknowledging two things here in this verse, 1 John 2, 1. First of all, he's representing God, so God is speaking to us through John. He says, I write to you so that you might not sin. And he says, but if anyone sins. So again, God understands his expectation for us is that we won't sin. But he also understands that we've not yet been perfected. And so we have this battle that goes on between the old man, the new man, the flesh, and the spirit. So God has given us a, a way out, if you will, because he knows that actually, in fact, even though we will hopefully make every effort not to sin as believers, that sometimes we still do. In fact, possibly every day. <laughs> but we have an advocate. We have a defense attorney when the devil goes before the Father to accuse us, he is the accuser of the brethren. And Jesus is going to defend us. Father, they're mine. They've been washed in my blood. They are forgiven. But of course, there's an expectation on our part that we will, when we do sin, we will practice confession and repentance. But let's go on here. He says, everyone who commits sin also commits lawlessness. Or one translation says, breaks the law. All sin is lawlessness. In essence, lawlessness is a total disregard for the law, whether it be God's law or man's law. And I would propose to you that we are living in a day and age where there's an ever-increasing disregard for God's law and man's law. And we've talked about this. When we don't, you know, follow God's principles, when we don't mete out justice equally and fairly and appropriately, when we teach people that there's no consequences for their actions, then lawlessness becomes the rule of the day, the norm. All sin, folks, is rooted in selfishness. Do you know that? 
And when someone willfully violates a known law, they are in essence saying, I'm more important than anything else. I don't care who made this law or why they made it. It serves my interests and purposes to break it, and so I will. That's lawlessness. Now, this is obviously not or should not be the heart attitude of someone who's been born again by the Spirit of God, this attitude of lawlessness. So we move on, verse 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. He, Jesus obviously, he was manifested, he appeared, one translation says, he appeared to take away our sins. So here John is speaking of Jesus' first appearance here on earth and the purpose for his appearing, which was to take away our sins. Most of us as believers have always understood scriptures like this to be exclusively dedicated to describing the forgiveness which we have in Christ, right? But lo and behold, guess what? It also has to do with what we read in verse 6. He appeared to take away our sins. Whoever abides in him does not sin. So it's not just about the fact that Christ came to remove our sins, to forgive our sins, to save us. He also came so that we could enter into a whole new lifestyle in Christ where we don't sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. One translation reads, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And so again, as believers, the scriptures make it clear. God understands. James writes, we all stumble in many ways. John acknowledges hey, I write to you that you would not sin. And if anyone sins, by the way, we have an advocate. So this idea of keeps on has to do not with someone who is attempting to live uprightly before the Lord. And then as we stumble here and there, we, we confess, we say, Father, please forgive me. I really blew it. Help me. Strengthen me. Or just someone who just keeps on doing what they do. And sadly, we talk about the modern, purpose-driven, seeker-friendly, emergent church, the easy believism, as some have called it, and that's exactly what's being encouraged and promoted. Oh, no, you don't have to change. Come as you are and stay as you are. Jesus says, come as you are, and then I will change you. I will transform you. I will make you a new creature in Christ. But this modern, watered-down gospel says, just come as you are and stay like you are and just use the name of Jesus and everything will be just fine. Whoever abides in him does not sin or does not keep on sinning. Whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. But he appeared to take away our sins. Not only has this to do with forgiveness, washing, cleansing of past sins. It has to do with taking away our desire, our inclination, and our propensity to sin in the future. If we are really walking in the Spirit, maintaining a daily walk with God, then our desire for sin should be diminished greatly. And we're told no one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. Again, lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle. There's a difference between Tempting to walk down the right path, stumbling, falling, getting back up, 
confessing, repenting, and just somebody who practices a lifestyle of sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And then, again, the other translation, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And again, those are two more major themes in this book of 1 John, seeing and knowing him. 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And even though we, not like the first century apostles, we have not physically seen him with our physical eyes, but we've been able to see him because of his Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of us. And Jesus even told Thomas, doubting Thomas, you know, Thomas, blessed are you because you've seen me and believed, but blessed is he who has not seen and has believed. So we've seen him in our hearts, our minds, and our spirits. And it's so important. John says, whoever keeps on sinning has not seen him or known him. 1 John 2.13, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the father. John says if you just keep on sinning, that's indication that you have neither seen him nor known him. What is he saying to us, folks? If there's no discernible change in your lifestyle after you make a profession of faith in Christ, then you're not saved. You don't know God. Again, I didn't say it. God said it. And by the way, don't we want to hear the truth? Uh, if you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you you've got a cold when you really have cancer, I say he's doing you an extreme disservice, wouldn't you? God tells it like it is because he loves us. And that's another deception of this world today when we talk about terminology, not calling things what they really are. God loves us and so he speaks the truth to us. But deception, lies, redefining things, that's not real love. That's fleshly love, fleshly compassion, but it actually leads to destruction. If you drive into a garage and you say, please check my oil, and the guy checks your oil and says, oh, you're fine, you're good to go, and you're two or three quarts low and half a mile down the road, your engine blows up. Did he do you a disservice? But he didn't want to offend you by telling you you were low on oil. Okay. Matthew 7, 20 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Master, Master, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. How do we know that will? First and foremost, by studying his word. He makes his will very clear to us in the scriptures if we will just read them and follow them. Anybody can say, Lord, Lord, Jesus is Lord. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. One of the political candidates is running around. He's a, he's a homosexual man married to a man. He claims to be a Christian. I hate to tell him. He can say, Lord, Lord, all day long, but if he's not doing the will of his Father in heaven, he's not going. And, of course, when people say that, we're the bad guys, we're the haters, he's the good guy. Well, I'll, I'll take God's word over man's word any day. Amen. 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? I will be the next president. There's a prophecy for you. Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You, check this out, who practice lawlessness. You see, whatever we practice, that's what we're going to be good at. If we practice righteous, then we're going to get righteousness. We're going to get better and better at being righteous. If we practice lawlessness, we're going to get more and more lawless. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Little children, let no one deceive you by teaching you that it's okay for Christians, quote, to live a sinful lifestyle, to cater to their fleshly desires. By the way, this goes all the way back to the first century. Gnosticism, antinomianism, which means against the law. These various branches of cults, the Gnostic cult and so forth, they were taught that it's absolutely okay to cater to your fleshly desires because your relationship with God is purely spiritual. Therefore, you can do whatever you want with your body. God's Word says it's all intertwined. The Greek word sozo, the word used in the New Testament for salvation, speaks of every aspect of who we are, our physical body, our spirit, our soul. Jesus died on the cross for every part of who we are, who we were created to be, and that's why He came in the form of a man and rose from the dead with a physical body because it's all interconnected. And the things that we do with our physical bodies, whether they be good or bad, are an expression of what's in our heart and in our mind. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Practice righteousness. So there are those who tell you, you don't have to do that. You're saved by grace through faith. Once saved, always saved. You can do whatever you want. That's just not biblical. He who practices righteousness, when you practice something, you do it regularly, right? Here's the definition for practice. Perform an activity or exercise a skill repeatedly or regularly in order to improve or maintain one's proficiency. If you don't practice righteousness, you're not going to be very proficient at it. Carry out or perform a particular activity, method, or custom habitually or regularly. So we don't just practice righteousness on Sunday and the rest of the week we do whatever we want. Although there are some groups that do that, are there not? I can think of some in particular, but I'll be nice and not mention them by name. Aren't I wonderful? <laughs> Verse 8. Hey, we're moving at a pretty good clip here. He who sins is of the devil. That's mean, that's hateful, that's not nice. Tell me I'm of the devil. Well, Jesus told the Pharisees they were of their father, the devil. Jesus told Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. So if you don't like God's terminology, then I don't know. You can either, uh, as Pastor Romaine used to say at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, shape up or ship out. <laughs> he was Pastor Chuck's sheepdog. And people would go to Romaine and they'd whine and they'd complain about this or that. He was an ex-Marine or a former Marine, by the way. Pastor Romaine, short, stocky little guy. And he'd take him into the counseling room and he'd say, you know what, you need to shape up or ship out. Wow, I don't know how long he'd last in the church today. 
I'd certainly take him. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8, the one who practices sin, this is a, a different translation, is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. So God wrote the book on righteousness, right? Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. The Bible is God's word. God wrote the book on righteousness and the devil wrote the book on sin. So a question that everyone needs to ask themselves, which book are you reading? Whose book are you reading? The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the devil's work, which is sin and death, because sin leads to death. John 10.10, 10, the thief, Satan, comes but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, sin and death. But those who are working for the devil, the one who practices sin is of the devil, will be destroyed with him when he is destroyed, and he will be destroyed. Again, this has been partially fulfilled at Christ's first coming when he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead on the third day. He destroyed the power of death over everyone who will embrace Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. We need no longer have any fear of physical death or spiritual death. For us, physical death is just the beginning of an eternity in paradise with God. Jesus has already destroyed that work of the devil. And yet we know the devil is still active in this world today, but when Christ returns, Satan will be bound and cast into the bottomless pit. No longer free to do his dastardly deeds. So again, I, I go back to my old mentor, J. Vernon McGee. From John's perspective, which is God's perspective, you're either a saint or an ain't. That's what J. Vernon used to say. Again, we like to come up with all these terms. Nominal Christian, carnal Christian. Are those things even real? I don't know. According to Jay Vernon, he was a pretty anointed guy. You're either a saint or an ain't, you see. But that's the way, oh yeah, I'm just a carnal Christian. Really? I think those two terms are mutually exclusive if you want to know the truth. In fact, well, you're either working for God or you're working for the devil, according to John here. And Bob Dylan also said that when he wrote the song, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So which one are you serving? It's not a difficult question. Maybe it is a difficult question because you don't want to answer it. Okay, verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him, his seed, God's seed, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. New American Standard Bible says no one is born of God practices sin or keeps on sinning. No one who is born of God practices sin. If you play for the Broncos, you don't practice with the Raiders. Or what have you. No one who is born of God practices sin. Or practices with the Raiders. <laughs> the moment someone has been 
truly been born again by the Spirit of God, there should be an immediate change in direction. And I've heard those testimonies time and time again. I experienced it in my own life. Not that I immediately became perfect, but it was like somebody had turned on the light, and God did turn on the light. And I saw things from a whole new perspective. And you often see people giving testimonies how they instantly got off drugs. They instantly stopped cursing, this and that and the other thing. Instantly stopped drinking. I know that other people struggle with it. And so what we've done is we've kind of come up with ways to accommodate that as well. We've lowered the expectations. But I think we should expect God to do this kind of work in everybody that gets saved and everybody that gets converted. But we've lowered the bar because, again, we've deviated from the truth of God's Word and we've embraced the philosophies of men. And Paul clearly warns against that in his writings. Okay, Matthew 3.8. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what we're talking about here. Whoever's been born of God does not sin. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You say you've repented. To repent means to turn and go the other way. Turn from your sin and begin to follow after God. The evidence is in your fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Now we know that no fruit starts off full grown, right? It starts off real tiny. starts off with a blossom, actually. And that turns into a little tiny fruit that grows and grows and grows. But again, for the fruit to grow, the tree has to have proper nourishment, proper uh, water, right? Hydration. And so we can start off with little tiny fruit, but if we don't feed the fruit, feed the tree by Bible study, worship, fellowship, prayer, all those disciplines of the Christian faith, then the fruit can dry up and shrivel up. Luke 5.32, I've not come to call, Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous. By the way, when he said that, what he meant, there really aren't any righteous. The Bible says none are righteous, not one. But I've come to call sinners to repentance. So what Jesus is saying, I have not come to call those who think they're righteous and don't need me. I've come to call those who know they are sinners and are willing to repent and turn to me. This word repent comes up a lot in the scriptures. Acts 26.20 But I, Paul, declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Did you know you can't be saved without repentance? And yet a lot of these uh, modern preachers, they don't use the word. I've watched videos by Rick Warren trying to figure out where he's coming from. He talks a lot about asking Jesus into your heart. He doesn't say anything about repenting. You can't be saved if you don't repent. If you don't believe you have anything to repent for, then you can't be saved. You have to be willing to acknowledge that you're a sinner, confess your sins, and repent before God. That's the whole gospel. It's not part of a gospel that'll get you saved. 2 Timothy 2.24, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. That God may grant them repentance so they will know the truth. Two things. First of all, I've told you, I pray for my close family members in particular. 
that God will grant them repentance, give them the gift of repentance. It doesn't come natural for human beings to repent. It's a work of the Spirit of God. Pray that God will grant them repentance. And then, by the way, so that they may know the truth. So there's a couple things that you can't do without repentance. You can't get saved and you can't know the truth. As long as you're unrepentant, you're living a lie. The person who's living in adultery hasn't repented. The person living a homosexual lifestyle hasn't repented. The person who regularly indulges in pornography hasn't repented. The person who is dishonest in his or her business practices hasn't repented. Need I continue? Jesus is calling you to a life of happiness, self-esteem, self-fulfillment, warm, fuzzy feelings, a life of purpose or purpose, as in dolphin, no, a life of material prosperity and perfect health, right? Is that what he's calling us to? He's calling us actually to a life of humility, brokenness, confession, and repentance. No wonder so many people don't want it. They want the other one, and there's a lot of places where you can get that message. The problem is it's not biblical. Are those groups really leading people to Christ or are they leading them to a false belief system? He's not calling us to a life of happiness, self-esteem, self-fulfillment, warm, fuzzy feelings, a life, a purpose-driven life, a life of material prosperity and a perfect health. Some of the most dynamic and powerful Christians that have ever walked this earth have been sicker than dogs. Do you know that? And out of that sickness and that struggle and that strife have come dynamic, dramatic faith and impact in the lives of the people around them and in, in the world of their day. Modern examples, Johnny Erickson, paraplegic. There's many others. Corey Ten Boom did not suffer in the terms of health, but she certainly suffered in the Nazi concentration camps. Boy, she must have missed the message. She missed the memo. Corey, you're supposed to be happy, self-fulfilled. You're supposed to have warm, fuzzy feelings, life of material prosperity and perfect health. Only you, your sister died in a Nazi concentration camp and you only made it out by the grace of God. Boy, you must have really been in sin, Corey. Catherine Marshall, so many others that out of their tragedy came triumph. No one who is born of God practices sin for his seed. His seed remains in him. Jesus Christ is the Son of God because God's seed is in him. God planted his seed within the Virgin Mary, and when we're truly born again, God's seed is integrated into our DNA. Don't ask me to explain it. It's a mystery. But God is a, a mysterious God. He's a majestic, powerful, miraculous God. And just as we can never remove our parents' seed from our biological DNA, as children of God, his seed can never be removed from our spiritual DNA. His seed remains in him, you and me. The reason the true child of God can no longer practice a lifestyle of sin, not saying that we will never sin, that would be great if it were true. The day is coming when we will not sin anymore when we see him face to face. But the reason the true child of God can no longer practice a lifestyle of sin, knowingly, willingly, living in lawlessness and yet claiming to be a child of God, the reason we cannot do that is because God's seed is in us and God cannot and will not ever sin. So if God's seed is in you, though the temptation arises, the desires will come and try to draw you away and drag you away. 
the seed of God, the Spirit of God in you says, no, no, we can't do that. I can't do that. I can't go there. And sadly, yet sometimes we do. And we must confess and repent to maintain a right relationship with God. Gospel of John 1.13 says, We are children born not of blood, it's not a physical birth, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. By the will of God that we are born again. 2 Peter 1.3 and 4. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. That's mind-blowing. We are mortal, finite, created beings, and yet through Christ we are able to become partakers of God's divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see, people view this, oh man, I have to give up all the fun stuff. I can't have any fun anymore. I can't indulge my flesh. God says you're actually escaping. That's the way that leads to destruction and eternal death. People view it as some kind of a, a burden or a bummer, man. I got to just so I can be a little goody tissue Sunday school boy or girl and I have to give up all the good stuff. No, you're escaping. You're escaping the flames of hell. How many of you would like to just stand in a burning building until it consumes you? No, you want to get the hell out of there. I'm not cussing. I'm using a spiritual analogy. You don't want to stay in that burning building and you don't want to stay in that lifestyle that leads to an eternal stay in Hotel California, which is pretty much the same thing. That's another place I don't really want to go anymore. Colorado, California, my options are becoming fewer and fewer. So, and it's kind of funny, as liberal as New Mexico is, it's beginning to look downright conservative by comparison. Isn't that amazing? Okay, we're told he cannot sin. I mentioned that term a moment ago, nominal Christians in name only. They can never seem to get their lives stabilized and on track. They're always struggling with follow-through. Inconsistent church attendance, inconsistent prayer life, inconsistent Bible study, and always falling back into sin. But we're told here that the true believer, the true child of God, cannot sin. And again, we know that there are some conditions there. God knows that we do sometimes. But the true born-again believer cannot go on sinning. That's been the major emphasis here. Keep on sinning, practicing a lifestyle of sin. King David had some whoppers, did he not? Peter had a few whoppers, especially prior to the day of Pentecost when he got filled with the Holy Ghost. King David committed adultery, murder, some really bad stuff. Saul, who became Paul before his conversion, was a killer of Christians. So the true born-again believer may fall into adultery, fornication, thievery, lying. Hopefully not, but sadly sometimes it happens. But a true son or daughter of God will eventually, I'm going to J. Vernon McGee again here, will climb out of the pig pen and return to the father. You know the story of the prodigal son, right? He demanded his inheritance early. 
I don't want to wait for the old man to kick the bucket. I want mine now. And that's kind of what happens with these people who want to do anything they want, live any style, lifestyle they want to live, and still be called a child of God. It's like, I want my inheritance now. I want heaven now, here on earth. Give it to me. And so the prodigal son squandered it all, remember? And he winds up living in the pig pen with the pigs. And he comes to his senses. We talked today about common sense. He comes to his senses. He goes, you know what? Even the servants in my father's house have it better than I do now. Even if I go back and I'm not the, you know, the favorite son, the, you know, the baby of the family, the coddled one. If, even if I go back and I'm a servant in my father's house, I'm better off than being here in the pig pen. And so J. Vernon McGee says that the true son or daughter of God will eventually climb out of the pig pen and return to the father. The true child of God hates being in the pig pen the whole time they're in there. Truth be told, there's no more, more miserable person on the planet than someone who has known God but is living in sin. You know that? The, the unrepentant, unknowing, lost person's having a whole lot more fun than that backslidden believer is. The prodigal in the pig pen, you got the worst of both worlds there. The lost person loves being in there and hates the thought of leaving. The true child of God hates it the whole time he's in the pig pen. The lost person loves the slop. Give me more. So if you're a true believer, you will not be able, according to John, to go on sinning. So the Spirit of God within you will not allow it. So in the immortal words of Pastor Romaine, shape up or ship out. Let's stand. Father God, we do thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy, your forgiveness. We know that we do fall short. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Lord, you've given us the opportunity for a new life, a new beginning, a fresh start in Christ. And Lord, it's predicated upon us. You did the hard part. As I said last week, you did the heavy lifting, Lord. You laid down your life on the cross of Calvary for our sins. But now, Lord, as you've offered us that wonderful, precious gift of forgiveness of sin, eternal life, you do expect us to do our part, and that is to confess those sins, to agree with you, and to repent. And Lord, if, it, if we have to do that every day, then so be it. That's what you want from us. You don't expect perfection in this life. You know that that's not possible for us. But in the life to come, you will perfect us, and that's the reward for us remaining faithful to you in this life is that when we see you face to face, when we have our new, immortal, glorified, eternal, imperishable bodies, you are going to make us perfect, even as you are perfect. So help us in the meantime, Father, to do what we need to do to stay in right relationship with you. Again, not, not believing that our works will save us, but Lord, that our practice of righteousness will draw us closer and closer to you and prepare us for that time when we will be just like you. Lord, we pray as we close that anyone who needs prayer today for any reason, whether it be to receive Christ as Lord and Savior to, or if it would be to climb out of the pig pen and come back to you, Lord, the prodigal sons or daughters here this morning perhaps, Lord, those who might need healing, Lord, or just uh, what physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it might be, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit and bless all those who choose to come forward today for prayer as we close. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.